الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسوله الكريم أما بعد اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم few weeks back when we last met I spoke about um, the need for all of us to recognize that there is a state of service that should be present within each and every one of us. And this is uh, like one of the core features of a Muslim. And you see the world around us and you see... Um, many of the unfortunate circumstances that we as a community, as an, an, as an ummah, find ourselves in. And there are many reasons for it, some of which perhaps we understand and some of which perhaps we don't understand. But one of the main reasons is that we have lost our um, sense of service. Meaning that uh, we let the world blow us in the direction that it's moving in. And what is the direction of the world today? You'll see that um, the world is very focused on how can I be served? How can I be served? For example, you'll see that uh, one, the dean of the people today is, if you had to, uh, you know, categorize the way that people behave and what, are, what motivates them, what drives them, you'll see that it's this whole notion of happiness. For example, there's a, um, different classes that have arisen recently, one at Harvard, one at Yale, and at other places as well, on happiness. In fact, the class at Yale on happiness is the most sought-after class in the undergrad level of all the classes at Yale. Can you imagine that people are spending $60,000, $70,000 a year as an undergrad at Yale. They worked their whole life to get there. Essentially, they worked so hard all through, even before high school, but particularly through high school. Eventually, they get to Yale, and the most popular class at Yale is this class on happiness. And if you think about it, the reason uh, that people have, um, are so in tune with this notion of happiness today is because they're really asking the question, how can I be happy? In the happiness class, there's not a lecture on how do you make other people happy. They're not, that's not what the focus of that class is. focus of that class is what will make me happy. And this has become like the dominant theme of today, which is that how can I be happy? How can I be satiated? How can I be contented? How can I be served? All of these ideas are very, very common. And this has slowly crept into us as well. When I say us, what I mean is that the, the Muslim ummah as a whole, this has also crept into us. So that what's happened is we've looked at Islam and we say, how can Islam make me happy? How can Islam make me happy? And there's nothing wrong with that per se, because Islam will make a person happy. But 
that's not the notion of a Muslim because the Muslim recognizes that even if they were to attain perfect happiness in this life, this life will end. So if the goal of life was to just achieve the highest level of happiness, then you still hit a dead end. Now, you have to understand that most of the world is teaching principles that lead you through the maze of life. So you, you wake up in the morning and there's all these choices. It's like a maze. You know, I'm going to turn here, then I'm going to turn here, I'm going to turn here, I'm going to turn here. You never really get to see where the end lies. And it's funny because you talk to people who seemingly achieve such heights in life. And the funny thing is that they'll often tell you that they were much happier at the beginning than when they eventually got to the goal that they thought was so high for them. For example, I commonly hear this because I'm in the role of medicine, right? So I'm teaching students who you know, work their whole life to get to medical school, and eventually you, you, these people work their whole life to become doctors. But when you catch them at 50, right, when all of that's disappeared and this whole idea of uh, I need to become a doctor at all costs and I'm going to do everything in my power to get to be a doctor, and my, everybody around me my whole life told me I have to become a doctor. It was like as if there was some sort of like, you know, pot at the end of this rainbow, Right? But when you really catch them at that age where they've actually achieved all of that and then they've had the opportunity to experience that success, they often tell you the same thing, which is that, well, I got here, but actually I realized that there's no here here. There's no there there. right? And it's funny because essentially what they're really saying is I went through the maze of life only to find out that I actually hit a dead end. That's the convoluted maze of life. And eventually, people guide you or give you advice or tell you where to go or how to do things in life, but eventually, they're leading you through this maze, and the vast majority of paths, in fact, I would say, all the paths lead to some dead end or another. For example, if the purpose of life was just happiness, right? If the purpose of our life was just happiness, then you'll get, you may reach the very end of that maze, but you're still going to realize that that leads to a dead end. Why? Because death will come. And death will cut off that happiness, and eventually a person will go to the grave, and they will have to face the consequences of their life in the grave. And that may not necessarily be happiness if a person pursued happiness in this world. Because why? This world is not a place of reward. This, place is, this world is a place of test. So if it's like a high school student says to you, why do I have to take final exams? I'm not happy. Now, in fact, that's what they're doing. They're telling you many students, you don't even have to take final exams anymore. Many high schools have canceled final exams. Because the students are not happy when they take final exams. They're too stressed. I'm not a proponent of uh, stressing people out, but my point still remains that the goal of life is not happiness. Happiness comes in Jannah. It's a consequence of life. We don't seek happiness in this world. We seek happiness in the hereafter. We don't seek reward in this world. We seek reward in the hereafter. We're not looking to be contented and served in this world. We're looking to be contented and served in the hereafter. Now, does that mean, does that, mean that a person can't be happy in this, life, in this life? There are circumstances where a person can be happy in this life, but it's not the purpose. We don't make decisions based on how can I maximize my happiness in this world. But, but that's become the dominant theme of today. That's become the dominant theme of today. Everybody's reading all these blogs on how they can become happier. Everybody wants to watch podcasts on how they can become happier. You put out a book, you just call it happiness, you know, exponential happiness, and you'll just sell copies just from the title. 
because that's the whole theme of the, the world in which we exist. But if we let that creep into our lives, and we're always asking the question, how can I be served? How can I be happy? How can this person treat me the way that I want to be treated? Then we're, and we're only going to end up at the same dead end that the vast majority of the world will, will end up at. The, the goal in, for us in this world is not happiness. The goal for us in this world is service. We are a people who take we fill ourselves with the love and remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we recognize that even that is not the final goal. That the final goal is to take that, what I call potential energy, and convert that into the kinetics of service of the rest of the world. Because every moment of service of the rest of the world is in essence the mechanism by which we perpetuate our happiness in the hereafter. For example, if I can put a smile on another person's face, inshallah, Allah will put a smile on mine. If I can forgive another person in this world, inshallah, Allah will forgive me on the day of judgment. If I can give and clothe others in this world, I can feed others and clothe others in this world, Allah will feed me and clothe me in the hereafter. So it's a completely upside-down paradigm. Meaning it's not upside-down, I mean it's the opposite. It's a reverse paradigm. And... We have to appreciate that, and we can't let this notion come into our heads that I need to be served. And in fact, you see this. This has crept into the community. You know, we, we want to make sure that we have the best food, and we have the best clothing, and we have the best um, dwellings, and we have the best vehicles. And somehow we see that as a success. But success does not come through those things. Those are all dead ends. And... The beauty of it is that we've been given a straight path. Now look, subhanAllah, we say that you know, we have this sirat al-mustaqim, we have this straight path. And what is the straight path? This straight path takes us straight through the maze. You know, this like uh, we call it like the maze of multiplicity. There's this, like a maze of multiplicity out there. This, everything leads you to a dead end. No matter how much people hype it up, no matter what people say about it, no matter how seemingly happy the people look, you know the truth about society. That If you get a little bit older, you recognize that everybody puts on a smile, particularly on social media, but the vast majority of those people are just smiling in the pictures, but inside they're not. So this, this straight path that we've been given is the straight path that leads you through this maze. It's the, it's the one path that isn't a dead end because it's the one path that leads to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it's that which leads to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which leads to success i should say which results in success in this world and the next so we're not going to ask the question how can you serve me uh, why can't this person serve me and this person treat me this way and this person do this for me we're asking the opposite question we're asking the question in every circumstance how can i go out there and put a smile on every person's face and that's not an easy thing to do. But that's what, reward, that's what results in reward. That's the challenge of life. What happens is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you an opportunity for, um, to, 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 to connect yourself to him. And then every time we get an opportunity to connect ourselves to him in some way, a test will come upon us. And that test will, be, will often be a test of service or interaction with others. And then based on the way in which we behave in those interactions, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will open the next door to be able to gain his proximity. If you look at the seerah, many people will talk about the seerah, and there's many things you can say about the seerah, but one way to think about the seerah is that it's just an oscillation 
between what I call retreat and reality. I've given this talk before. But anyway, it's worth repeating here. Retreat and reality. What is retreat? Retreat is when you get to huddle and you get to focus on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you'll see that sahaba, they would retreat into the company of the Prophet and there would be just a focus on Allah. So they would be able to focus on their dhikr, focus on their Qur'an, focus on their love of the Prophet They would just be huddled around him. But invariably, with, after every circumstance of retreat, would come another circumstance in which they would be tested. For example, what is Badr except a test? What is Uhud except a test? What is Khandaq except a test? Etc., etc. You can go through this. You're going to find this oscillation, this period of relative stillness, and then this period of like having to struggle and sacrifice. And then another period of relative stillness, and then another period of having to struggle and sacrifice. And the whole seerah just undulates between this. And that's a lesson to all of us. The, the goal in, in and of itself isn't the dhikr of Allah. The goal is that we take that, that proximity that we gain to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that connection that we gain to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that we reciprocate that when we go out into the world and it becomes a mechanism by which we gain the maximum reward by going out there and struggling and striving in the service of deen. So this has to be the primary objective of every Muslim. And as I've mentioned a few weeks ago, and I'm repeating today, because to me this is the dominant message that we, needs to be repeated over and over again until it gets embedded in our hearts, is that we have to become, um, the, the, that the Qur'an, as I've mentioned last time, that the Qur'an is a, essentially really just a recollection, or you can say a capturing of the examples of the people who served the cause of Allah. I mean, think about it. Billions of people have crossed the planet. Billions of people. Billions. I mean, there's currently billions of people on the planet. But historically, billions and billions of people have crossed through this life. But the Qur'an is just taking a snapshot of a very small handful of them. It's taking a snapshot of this group or this group or this person or that person or this community or that person. It's a handful. But they all have one similar characteristic. They were out there servicing the deen of Allah. They were out there servicing the deen of Allah. And when we read those circumstances, they're not stories that we tell our children as we put to bed. They're not stories like some sort of Netflix we're just watching and we're just entertaining ourselves. They're meant to inspire us. They're meant to inspire us to cause us to ask the question, I wish I could be there. I'll just give you one simple example from the seerah, maybe a couple from the Qur'an, but one definitely from the seerah. Look, 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 at, look at the... There, there's one very beautiful um, snapshot of the seerah, which is worth... I, everyone in the room knows it, but it's worth just reflecting on for a minute. You know that um, after the conquest of Mecca, and uh, there was a battle, and after that battle, uh, there was a conquest of Mecca, which, which was essentially no bloodshed, uh, in order for Mecca to be con conquered. And soon, soon thereafter, there was a, another battle uh, near Mecca. I'm not going to go into the details right now. But essentially, there was a victory. After some struggle, there was a victory there, and a massive amount of wealth came into the Ummah. And the Prophet ﷺ just distributed that wealth, I mean, without even thinking, knowing it was wealth. It was as if water was being distributed, literally. just Wealth was handed out everywhere. And Ansar, um, 
they began to whisper amongst themselves that, you know, like, okay, the Prophet had a love for Mecca. The Prophet is treating the people of Mecca in this way. He's giving them so much of this wealth, etc. So perhaps uh, he may actually, you know, now relocate himself to Mecca. And eventually, when the word came to the Prophet he gathered together the companions, and in particular the Ansar, and this was actually just for the Ansar, and uh, he asked them, the, after recognizing their, their circumstance, he said to them that, you know, uh, does it not um, please you that, that these people are being given whatever the camels and the wealth, and that you are going to take home the messenger of Allah? Right? And this was a very high point in the, uh, in the seerah, and it was a very, very unique circumstance uh, in which even the Ansar themselves, they you know, wept uh, at that circumstance because they recognized that they had actually, that all of these were just the goods of the world and people had ta- were taking the goods of the world, but they were going to take home the messenger of Allah and they recognized that their sacrifice had actually resulted in something very special. Now, my point that I'm trying to make here is that when the Prophet had to select in the end, even after his home was retaken and he had said that he had wished that he could stay there, when he had left that city, he said there was no place more beloved to him. But when in the very end, when it came to deciding where he would remain, and even then eventually where he would be buried, he went back with the Ansar. He went back with the, who, who are the Ansar? The helpers of the deen. Right? The Ansar, essentially their title, they had many characteristics, but the name that we give them is the, is the helpers. Right? Essentially, they took this responsibility upon themselves. They said to themselves as part of their commitment to the Prophet that we will service this deen with everything that we have. They, made, they, made, they were the ones that made Yathrib Medina. They were the ones that made it Medina. Now, of course, people came, right? People came to that city. They migrated to that city. They made the hijrah to that city. But they, that, that notion of their service was what essentially what was what found was what was how that entire city was founded and how the Prophet eventually chose them when even the, even Mecca had become uh, reconquered. So here you learn a very very even from the example of the Sira at the very nth stage of the Sira at that very final stage you're learning a very important thing which is that who takes home the messenger? Who's going to keep the messenger? Who's going to keep the proximity of the messenger? So I them, it's going to be those people who are going to be servants of this deen, the helpers of this deen. And this is the same statement, by the way, which is recollected in the Quran centuries before. Centuries before. When Isa salam, stood before his companions and said, Man ansari ilallah. It's quoted in the Quran. He said to them, Who are my helpers for the sake of Allah? And by the way, like I said, I mentioned a few weeks back, but I'm repeating again today. Uh, like I said at that point, when we read that, it's not a story. It's like an inspiration. I mean, honestly, when, when, you, when that question arises in that way, we should all jump out of our seats. We should all jump up and say, like, ah, me, I wish I was there. And that's exactly the thought that should be going through the mind of every person. I wish I was there. I wish that when Isa had called upon those people to become uh, servants of the deen, to become the helpers of the deen, Ansari Allah, to become the helper, his helpers in the deen, I wish I could have raised my hand and I wish I could have been there. And so many times people say, if I was a companion, if I was present at the time of the Prophet you're not though. But that doesn't mean that you can't take on that one characteristic 
that one characteristic which would have connected us to the Prophet Sallallahu and would have been required if we were present at that time. We wouldn't have been able to make those sacrifices. It's Allah's mercy that a little bit of distance was created. But that one characteristic which defined where the Prophet Sallallahu ended up eventually, this is the characteristic that we should embed in ourselves, which is that we should, st we should not be sitting around and waiting for the world to serve us. We should be standing up and ask the question, how can I serve this deen? Uh, the other way, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the other way to look at this is who's the takers and who's the givers? We're, why do we want to be takers? We want to come into the masjid, we want to take the benefit of the masjid. We fail to ask the question, why am I able to benefit from the masjid? If we're able to benefit from any masjid, from any organization, from any circumstance, it's why. It's because there's a group of people that are out there servicing that to create, to create the opportunity that allows everybody to be able to benefit. So the question isn't, how can I benefit? The question is, how can I serve? By the way, this is even the famous quote from American history. I'm going to misquote it probably, but it's the famous quote from American history. Uh, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Now it gets put on every museum in America. But this is like the message from way before that. Right? The question isn't, what can America can do for you? The question is, what you can do for America? That's the, the quote that's being stated. But essentially, it's the same concept, which is what? Don't ask what, how, what I can take. Ask what I can give. And the deen, bilawla, because uh, the deen even more so. We should not be sitting around asking, what can the deen give me? We should be sitting around and asking, where can I give every drop of blood? Where can I give every tear? Where can I give all my sweat? Where can I give all my wealth? Where can I give my time? That's what allows a person to be able to achieve the highest echelons of deen. And by the way, it's not predicated on, uh, I need to know this, I need to go study so many books, I need to go do... No. No, that's not what's required. The Sahaba were very... The Sahaba just simply came and presented themselves to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ leveraged each of them to be able to create a group of people that we all, upon whose shoulders all of us stand. So we shouldn't create preconditions for ourselves. Like, oh, okay, I'm not really qualified. I don't really know that much. I'm not able to do this. I'm not able to do that. I'm not so pious as the rest of the people. No, that's not the, that's not the criteria. There's no resume required here. The only one criteria that's required is for a person to just recognize that it's not about me being served. It's about how I can serve others. And if a person can just embed that simple concept in their mind, it completely flips the narrative of how the world works. Because, uh, I don't know if I said this last time, the whole world runs on 1% or 2% of people. I know that there's uh, billions and billions of people on the planet, but the whole world is running on 1%, meaning 99% of the people are takers. They're going to benefit and just do whatever they do. And there's 1% of the people, even 1% is an overestimate, to be honest with you. There's 1% of people that are running the whole planet. They're the ones that are out there making the sacrifices, struggling. And actually, in the domains that we care about, it's probably even less than that. Right? Because I'm not trying to inspire you to become an NBA basketball player. Right? So there's many domains that you can just eliminate. They're not, they're not of concern for us because they're not the goal that we have set before ourselves. So it doesn't take a lot of people to effectuate a change in the world. But it does take a lot of determination on the part of a small number of people to be able to create a change in the world. So 
this is the first step. Like, if our goal is going to be like, you know, when's the next halal restaurant opening up and let's make sure that we all go try it, then it's over. You will open lots of halal restaurants. I have no doubt about that. That'll all happen, you know. And, but that's exactly what we'll become, you know. What's the benefit of that? But if the goal is to ask the harder question, which is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed me with A, B, and C, what am I going to do with those blessings? How am I going to create an opportunity to be able to serve uh, with those blessings? Then, subhanAllah, the community can achieve a tremendous amount. And honestly, I look at the community, and I, I have a very broad way of looking at things. And I look at the community, particularly like the American Muslim community, and I just see like a tiny, 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 tiny number of people. Now, the community likes to celebrate the number of masajid that they have, and they go to fundraising dinner, they see 500 people in a room, they see 100,000, or they see 1,000 people in the room, or they see 5,000 people at Eid prayer, they get very excited. It's, that is nothing. That can be swept away with one wave. It's a tiny fraction. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. And to make some sort of assumption that we're like planted and stable and that nothing can, we can withstand anything, that's a gross overestimation of the, the status of the community. No, this is a fledging community which can easily be blown away by the wind. And the only way this community will thrive will be through the sacrifice of every person. I mean, every person has to recognize that they carry a responsibility. And by sacrifice here, I don't mean sacrifice for my own interests. I mean sacrifice for the sake of the deen. For the interest of raising the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and spreading this message to every single person that it can be spread to. So that requires that as a community, the whole community come together and create this notion of service within them. And it doesn't need to be complicated service. It could be as simple as just smiling at the neighbor next door to you. Or as simple as uh, handing out food to the people who are in need. And they don't need to be Muslim even, by the way. But it's just until that, that paradigm is shifted, right? This paradigm of how can I be served? How can I collect as much as possible? How can I have as much as possible? Uh, until that paradigm is shifted, it's very hard to move. To move. Yeah, we'll, we'll be able to have some successes and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the barakah of the deen and the du'a of the Prophet and will be able to carry us through. I'm not doubting that. But we certainly will not have achieved our potential. And we individually will not have been able to achieve um, the, the, the maximum reward uh, that was available to us. We have a very unique opportunity to be able to uh, to do lots for the sake of the for our, so the sake of ourselves in the service of the deen, but it requires that we completely change the paradigm in which we we, we look at things, and that's by the way, you don't want to you don't have to look further than yourself in the mirror, because every person in this room is going to be able to trace their Islam back to something, and that is the tracing of their Islam back to something is always going to be predicated on upon somebody who made some sacrifice. Many of us, who knows where we would be or what we would be worshiping. You travel the world and you see people worship so many different things and have so many different ways by which they uh, try to achieve an understanding of the universe. And this straight path is so special and so unique. And the more you reflect on it and the more you think about it, and even after so many years you know, of having received an education and having thought through Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy and all these philosophies, every time I come back and try to break down all of these different ideologies and I look back at Islam as a straight path, it's such a blessing. It's such a blessing. But the question is, how did it come? It came because somebody before me sacrificed. Somebody had made some sort of struggle 
with, and instead of thinking about themselves, they, they actually made the effort to go and tell someone, someone in my lineage about the deen. And it doesn't just come from handing out a pamphlet. It comes from like truly living the deen, sacrificing, struggling. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees that a person's making effort day in and day out and day in and day out. And the barakah of that effort is that doors open. So it's not so simple as they just picked up the phone. Obviously, there were no phones hundreds of years ago, but that they simply just told somebody about Islam and the person accepted it. No, they became true Muslims themselves. They took the circumstances of stability and used it to build themselves and their knowledge of deen, their understanding of deen, their connection with Allah. And every time an opportunity came to serve, they would then sacrifice and be tested through that service until that would allow them to be able to regain their connection with Allah or deepen their connection with Allah, which would allow them to take the next step of service. So this is a very, very, very important understanding that all of us should appreciate. We should not be so blinded to think that this goal of our life is our happiness. I, I agree, the goal of life should be happiness, but it should be the happiness of others. We should desire to bring every person into, into this deen for the sake of their happiness. Not, not bringing people into the deen because it makes me feel good. By the way, even our da'wah, often, is just for our own happiness. Somebody comes in the masjid, they accept Islam, we become happy, we hug them, greet them, thank them, and then they leave, and most people don't think twice about where they went. So then the question is, were we really concerned about the person who came in the door, or were we more concerned about us being happy that they came in the door? There's a big difference, right? Because now I feel good because somebody else agrees with what I think. Or I'm a minority, I didn't really feel respected, so now I'm happy that somebody else came in and joined my minority. Makes me feel like we've increased by one. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about having more concern for all of humanity than we have for ourselves. I gave this example before here. I don't know where I mentioned it, but just... SubhanAllah, I'm talking too much, but let me just finish this thought and then we'll stop. But uh, subhanAllah, look at the verse of the Qur'an concerning how the Prophet um, the Prophet um, desire for humanity. I could give a separate talk on this another time, but SubhanAllah. The Qur'an is saying to the Prophet perchance you will annihilate yourself. Perchance you will annihilate yourself with your concern uh, over humanity. This is how concerned the Prophet was. But look at the wording. First of all, let's just establish one thing. The Prophet had such a concern for all of humanity that he sacrificed and struggled and used every circumstance in order to be able to service humanity. This was his desire. And this kept him up at night, and this brought his tears. This is what released the tears from his eyes. This is what caused the sweat to come from his forehead, and this is what caused on those circumstances where it happened for his blood to be shed. Right? So, and this was what he embedded in his companions, and this was the struggle that they made. This concern for all of humanity. That there should be no corner of the earth except that they have been exposed to la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. But look at the way the Quran expresses that. فَلَعَلَّكَ بَاقِعُ النَّفْسَكَ عَلَىٰ أَثَارِهِمْ so ala atharihim means upon their footsteps. So the way I've given this example before, it's going to be a butchering of the beauty of it, but just you know, imagine that you're trying to convince someone of something, okay? 
you are, you, want, you are talking to them directly, so you are facing them, and you're trying to convince them. Okay, so you have that much concern. Okay, now imagine, take this one step further, imagine that this, this is the person that you're trying to convince here. Imagine that they turn their back to you, but you still have so much love and concern that you're trying to convince them with your utmost effort and as if you're about to annihilate yourself because you have so much care. Now, Imagine that they walk away and there's just their footsteps on the ground and you are standing crying over their footsteps and almost about to annihilate yourself over concern on their footsteps. This is what the Quran is saying, the status of the Prophet's concern for humanity. You are about to annihilate yourself over their footsteps over their footsteps. You're that much concerned about them that they're like long gone. Their footsteps are sitting in the sand and you're concerned that they, they left and they're long gone. This was the love of the Prophet for all of humanity. And this is, what, this, is, this is the love of the people who are of the community of the Prophet They will take every opportunity they can in the greatest wisdom, in, 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 in a way that's extremely wise, because of that concern, right? They're not forcing anything because they want that message to uh, be given to the person. They have such a love for the person that they will do it with such wisdom that they spread this message far and wide. And all you have to do is travel the world, and you're going to go to every corner, different corners of the world. You're looking at this culture, that culture, this continent, that continent, to this language, that language, all these people are Muslim. And you're just wondering, how? How did this happen? You know, from, from where? From one man in a, uh, in a desert who receives a message in a cave with no technology to this exponential spread throughout history such that geographies are changed, that every continent has this thriving Islam. Uh, present in it, within it, so complete cultures have been overturned. It's subhanAllah, it's absolutely phenomenal, but it didn't just come because out, out of nowhere, it didn't come out of thin air. It came from service. These people came into deen and they didn't take. They actually became the ones from whom we take from. I mean, think about it. You say Imam Bukhari. Who's Imam Bukhari? Where is he in relation to Mecca? Where, where, where is his hometown in relation to Mecca? I mean, so far, so distant, such a different culture. Yet, he not only, his predecessors not only became Muslim, but they turned around and asked the question how they could serve the whole Ummah. So that today, Bukhari, Imam Bukhari's book is being read in Mecca. It's amazing that the people who came into the deen contributed to the deen so much that it actually returned back to the house of the deen. You see the picture. Where are we? Where are we? We're just caught up in ourselves. We're caught up in our own bubbles. We're so worried about ourselves. All our energy goes into like fighting with one another. We're fighting with our spouses. We're fighting with our kids. We're fighting with our relatives. Because it's like, why can't you serve me? You're not serving me. You know, my spouse is not serving me. My uncle's not treating me the way I should be treated. My kids, they're not doing, you know, we've got all these complaints. All, you know, how many battles can one person fight? You fight, 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 fight with your spouse. You're so tired, there's no energy left. You have no energy to serve Dean. 
Right? Your fight, fight, fight with your uncle, fight, fight, fight with your aunt, fight with your parent, fight with your cousin, fight with your brother, fight with your sister. It's like six-front war. Countries don't even survive a two-front war. Read military history. Countries don't even rarely survive a two-front war. And we got six fronts going on, and then we're like standing up and trying to serve as dean. It doesn't work that way. This attitude has to be completely reversed. It has to be, how can I serve everyone? The Prophet sent them there like in the home, he's serving the home. In the family, he's serving the family. In the community, he's serving the community. And he's, in his dreams, he's serving the world. In his dreams, what I mean is in his thinking. In his thinking, he's serving the world. And creating a group, group of companions that do the exact same. So it's lies on them. So that's got to be the attitude of every Muslim. We should be asking the question, how can we serve? And if there's no like, prerequisite that you've got to like, submit a resume and get, a, get admitted. No. You come into deen, you take this basic shahada, you know, the basic level of the shahada, and then you take the opportunities that you can, whether that's in the masjid or in a gathering or in a particular circumstance, that becomes the, food, that becomes the fuel, and then you go out there and you serve every person that you can. Even just service, silent service, is sufficient to be able to at least buy the capital, that's in the political capital, social capital, that's necessary to be able to bring someone into the deen. But again, if the, if the goal of the ummah is to serve ourselves, like, you know, how many halal chicken places can I create, open up, and how many, time, how many places have I visited, and where can I get the best pizza, and then we're, we're going to see the results. We're going to see the results. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. I'm not saying that we can't enjoy uh, with our family certain amenities, and I'm not saying that, that, may not, that there aren't people out there that are creating those amenities for us. It's fine. That's part of uh, establishing any community, but that can't be the goal. It can't be what wakes us up in the morning, what puts us to bed at night, what causes us to drive an hour from our homes. We won't drive an hour from our homes for anything except if it means it's some sort of service to me. There are many, 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 many opportunities to serve. We should put ourselves in the center of those. Every, your, your local masjid, wherever you live, your local masjid, you, you, you should be a servant in that masjid. In, in the families, we all have families. We should be servants in our families. Starts there. Start there. Be, be, being servants in our families. Having a concern about who's in the house. Who are the members of the house? Who's living in my house? What do I have to do to serve each one of them? If everyone is serving, you know, everybody has that attitude of service, and it's, it's never going to be perfect that everybody has that attitude of service, but if the idea is that I have no expectation from anyone, my only hope is that I can serve, my expectation is with Allah, that's a completely different way of thinking. But if the question is going to be, you know, uh, we need to go sit and uh, somebody needs to explain to each of us how we can each, you know, how each of us can make each other happy, and it, it often doesn't result in anything. It, uh, and it, it, it's not what creates, it, if it does lead you anywhere, it's eventually going to lead to a dead end. Because there's one straight path, and that path takes us to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But that path is completely lined with service. It's lined with recognizing that every penny in our pocket is a mechanism, not by which we feed and clothe and enjoy our own lives, but by which we can elevate the lives of those in need. That's all this is. Every dollar we're given is just a big test. Yes, we have the right to be able to spend it on our families and ourselves, and I'm not even saying that that's wrong. It's, it's something that actually is part of our deen, to service our families, to spend on our families. But the goal should always be to attain the maximum reward possible so that we can attain the maximum happiness in the hereafter.
That's the only place of happiness. Every, every, every other happiness is a dead-end happiness because, again, as I said, even if we reach the pinnacle of happiness, death will still end that, uh, that path and we'll be left with whatever's in the grave. That's the beauty of this dean. It, it makes things so clear. It makes things so clear. Like, uh, you don't have to be confused about with the way in which the world works. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst those who become servants of his deen. May he make us amongst those who are able to uh, fill ourselves with his love and his remembrance. And may he make us amongst those who are able to spread it to those around us. Wa akhirat da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.